Space 1999 is a British sci-fi TV show which ran for two seasons back in the 70s, but its cultural impact is still felt today. So much so that a new documentary is currently being made all about it. And today we're talking to the writer and director of that documentary, Jeffrey Morris, to find out more. Are you a Space 1999 fan or do you have another favorite space-based science fiction show? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website and please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things but right now enjoy episode 162 of the space and things podcast you're listening to space and things with Dave giles and emily carney I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 162 of our podcast. How was Huntsville, Emily? How was the sci- uh, the Skylab 70s show? It was awesome. Yeah, I had a great time. Uh, I got to see uh, some of my favorite people there. I got to see David Hitt. Uh, he do, he was the MC of the show, and he did an awesome job. In a beautiful gold jacket. Yes, and a beautiful outfit. He also had a uh, Owen Garriott mustache, which which sent me. Uh, it was it was beautiful. Yeah, I got to see uh, Dr. Joe Kerwin and Dr. Jack Lausma, nice. and they've all been on our show previously, which is really cool. It was it was a wonderful party. A lot of my friends were there. We just hung out, had a great time, ate some nice food, and it was it was awesome. It was definitely worth going. And uh, Huntsville is always awesome, even if nothing is going on there, even if there's no event, just because. I always like to get a hotel room. You look across the way and there's that big Saturn V. It's just incredible. It never gets old. It, it, you never get like tired of seeing that. Like I'd never, I'm like, man, I got to see this ugly old rocket again. You never get tired of that. It's always like, wow, it's the first and the last time you see it. You're always like, this is awesome. So I, I loved it. It was, I had a wonderful time and I wish I could have stayed longer. It was awesome. Huntsville is just incredible. If you haven't been to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, I highly recommend you put it on your list. It's incredible. They have some amazing artifacts there. And if you haven't seen the Saturn V there, you've got to see it. I mean, as somebody who wasn't alive during the Apollo moon missions, you have to see it. I mean, it's just like, wow. Like I said, never gets old. I'm still recovering from traveling because I'm old now and (laughs) travel doesn't hit. The same way it used to back in the day. Travel's a little more arduous now, but uh, no, it was amazing. I had a wonderful time. So yeah, excellent. it was awesome. Right. So shall we crack on with this week's main feature then? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk everything Space 1999. Yeah. So for those who haven't watched it, Space 1999 is a British science fiction television series that aired from 1975 to 1977. As the title may suggest, it's set in the year 1999 and it follows the adventures of the inhabitants of Moonbase Alpha, a scientific research facility on the moon. After a massive nuclear explosion pushes the moon out of Earth's orbit, the base drifts through space, encountering alien civilizations and facing various challenges while trying to survive and find a new home. The show was the brainchild of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, who are, of course, famous for Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. But Space 1999 was a live-action show. There's a new documentary being made called The Eagle Has Landed, all about the Eagle Transporter, which is an iconic spacecraft from the TV series Space 1999. 
It's a versatile moon-based utility vehicle used for exploration, reconnaissance, and transportation of personnel and supplies, recognizable by its distinctive design. Even those of you who probably may have not seen the show probably would recognize the spacecraft. The Eagle plays a crucial role in the show, enabling the moon-based Alpha crew to navigate space, encounter alien worlds, and tackle various challenges while stranded in the cosmos. The Eagle has become a cult icon and is fully deserving of a full-length documentary, so we're thrilled today to be talking to Jeffrey Morris, the writer and director of the documentary. So let's find out more. Grab your flight controls and hang on. Here comes the Space and Thanks podcast. Hello, Jeffrey. Thanks for joining us. So let's start from the beginning. So along with Space 1999, what made you a spaceflight enthusiast? Uh, I know you love Skylab, for example. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love some Skylab. I was sort of a different child. I, I, uh, I must have been about two and a half, three years old. And, uh, you, you know, I, I saw on the television the uh, Saturn V. You know, I was born in 67. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really cognizant for, for, uh, Apollo 11 or anything like that, but it was, uh, it's probably Apollo 14 that I, that I really started paying attention and I saw this and I sort of became obsessed with it. And it was as a very small child, you know, I knew the names of all the astronauts. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, I was a space reporter from my class. So I would, <laughs> I would watch <laughs> nice. all the transmissions from the moon and stuff. And I come back and tell my friends about, you know, what they were doing and everything. So. I don't know. I got the space bug really, really early and I was very, very interested in it. Uh, I thought Skylab was the coolest thing ever. The idea of a space station up there and then staying up there for those longer durations and everything, you know? And so I was one of those kids who went to the library. My mom took me to the library pretty much every single week. And I would check out all the NASA books and books on space over and over and over. And I'm sure uh, <laughs> other, other people uh, who wanted to find those books in the library couldn't get them because I was always bringing them home. <laughs> so, you know, so that, yeah, that, that's what started. Early 70s, I became obsessed with Apollo. So let's talk Space 1999. So that premiered and ran on television during the mid-70s. So out of a sea of many other science fiction franchises, including Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, for example, what captivated you about this show, especially the Eagle spacecraft? Well, it's interesting you mentioned those uh, those other shows. So I was an avid Star Trek fan. I watched reruns of the original Star Trek every day after school. You know, that was a big deal to me. But the issue with Star Trek was it was set 300 years in the future. There mm. was something about the fact that it seemed kind of unattainable. It was really cool, but it, but it didn't feel like it pertained to me or, or, or the, the pe- you know, people I knew of my generation. So I think when Space 1999 came around, I remember seeing the very first uh, previews for it, and I was blown away because the Eagle, uh, it, they showed it in the preview, and I, there's, I'm like, I see the spaceship. I'm like, what is that? You know, and, and the idea of this ship that had similarities to the limb, you know, that was a big part of it. And I think that, the, and the idea that it was on a moon base, which is obviously we were going to the moon, you know, and right. And so this is coming along just a couple years after the moon landings. You know, it was like, my gosh, this this is 25 years from now. I could be flying that ship. I could be on that moon base, right? And so, that, so there was something about the connection directly to, to us and to our time and it projecting into the future. I think that's why Space 1999 resonated with me more than some of the other sci-fi shows. 
So The Eagle Has Landed will feature interviews with many spaceflight and science fiction legends and has a pretty awesome crew. Now, full disclosure, I am one of its associate producers. So how will these contributions, you think, enrich the documentary? Well, you know, going back to The Eagle, um, because I kind of spoke about Space 1999, but The Eagle itself was such an amazing design and it really did feel like the um, extension of, of the reality of the time. So one of the things that I want to do with this documentary is I don't I don't think you can contextualize Space 1999 and the Eagle without going back and talking about uh, real space travel, what was really going on with space exploration, kind of leading into it, because it, it obviously had to have a connection point there. So one of the things that I'm doing, um, we're uh, uh, Charles Duke, lunar module pilot for uh, Apollo 16, is going to be part of the project, which is really, oh, really wow. exciting to me because Apollo 16 was was probably... Um, my favorite mission when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, I have this great photo we're going to show in the documentary where I had recreated the Saturn V on the on the uh, launch pad with the gantry and everything in my bedroom the night before launch. I'm going to actually show that as part of the documentary. You know, something we're also trying to do here is we we obviously have a number of uh, the actors who were in the show Space 1999, Barbara Bain, Nick Tate. I have some visual effects legends like uh, Brian Johnson, who was the designer and uh, creator of the Eagle. Um, he's going to be part of it. Uh, a gentleman named Bill George, who was a, uh, um, well, well, Brian's an Oscar winner. Bill George has been in, pretty sure he's won Oscars. He's also, uh, he's been like part of like five Star Trek films and Blade Runner and amazing visual effects artist. And he was directly influenced by Brian Johnson, the Eagle and that sort of thing. So he's an Eagle aficionado. So I'm mm -hmm. planning to go and do a tour of Industrial Light and Magic with him as part of the documentary, which is going to be really neat. There's some other people that we're, we're, we're looking at and talking to that are some um, very, very big name celebrities, but we're still working on that. So I can't quite announce it yet, but um, if we get them, it's going to blow people's minds. <laughs> so <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's so exciting. Yeah, that uh, is exciting. So we've had a couple of questions from our Patreon subscribers. Toby Jeffries uh, from Manchester has asked, and, and this question has been seconded by Don Irwin. I don't think I've seen that on our Patreon before, but anyway, uh, he said, how much science went into the design of Eagle? A few things look lifted from space rocketry. Uh, it always looked a good mix of functional design with some really cool touches and all of that before Star Wars, he said. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is, that, that is a really um, interesting thought, right? The Eagle... Uh, came along at a time sort of post-2001 Space Odyssey, right? It was it was directly inspired by the moon bus in 2001, but they definitely looked at NASA hardware, Brian Johnson did when he was designing it. They looked at the uh, the Gemini capsule, and then obviously you have the, these Apollo-style rockets in the back, and then you have the uh, RCS thrusters and everything. It literally looked like it was influenced by NASA technology. And if we took the limb and you, you had a grandchild of the limb, it was the Eagle. It felt like, you know, now, obviously there are some things that they depicted it doing in the show that, that are scientifically, um, Im implausible, right? I mean, you couldn't have flown that into an atmosphere, <laughs> you know, they showed it flying around in atmospheres. They showed it doing a lot of things. I mean, it was traveling at what a quarter of the speed of light. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things there that were, there were a bit of a stretch. There were a bit of a stretch, but but I think what, what I think people like myself and so many of us love about it is it's still, you know, unlike the Millennium Falcon, which is a cool looking ship, you don't really understand how the Millennium Falcon would actually work in space. The Eagle, you can look at it and go, okay, I get it. I can see how this thing, it, it has actual 
aerospace elements to it, you know, hardware. So mm. um, it definitely was an influence. This is now a very good follow-up. John Wisenhunt has asked, how do you respond to critics who say that eagles went to planets that they should not have been able to fly? And I guess that goes into the other things you said. I say to critic, they're right. Yeah. I think they're 100% <laughs> right. There is no possible way the eagle could have flown into an atmosphere. I mean, there's so many things about it that you know, obviously our fantasy elements, right. Is that sort of yeah. thing. They were doing things with it that they just couldn't have done. I think, you know, if I, if I ever got a chance to do a reboot of the series, I would try to come up with an atmospheric version of it or some sort of an aeroshell that could go around it to that, that allows it to, you know, to go into an atmosphere safely, that kind of thing. I mean, but you'd have to do that if you're going to stay within the realm of actual physics. So I respond to critics by saying they're right. <laughs> Has there ever been ever been any talk of a reboot? There was a, a look at it around 2012 that uh, that didn't come to pass. It fell apart. And I've actually pitched the IP holders ITV a couple of times. It got really close the second time, actually. Um, and I think there's still who knows, there still might be a possibility with it, you know, to 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 bring it back in some form. I think that one of the things this documentary will show you know, we're recreating visual effects. We're, we're doing things with modern technology, but we're doing it as an homage to the original effects. You can see what this could look like if, if it yeah. were to become a new TV show or a motion picture. And it's definitely part of it. We're actually rebuilding some of the sets, um, the Eagle interior for this documentary at Pinewood wow. Studios, which is going to be really cool. I'm excited about that. I think if there's going to be a, um, you know, some sort of a case study on whether or not this would work, I think this documentary is it. Awesome. Okay. So, The Eagle Has Landed seeks to connect Space 1999's moon-based science fiction to past, present, and future spaceflight accomplishments. For example, the current and future Artemis program aims to establish more long-term lunar habitation. So, how does one connect a 1970s science fiction show with a cult following to the Artemis program? You know, how are there... How are there parallels? Oh, well, there's a lot of connections. The whole uh, fifth act of the documentary is really about talking about current space initiatives. So, um, I, you know, I have a gentleman that's, that's going to be part of the project, Aldo Spadani, who is a uh, aerospace engineer. He's also been a Hollywood consultant, uh, amazing guy, good friend of mine. And Aldo and I are actually going to, one, we're going we're gonna to explore the science of the Eagle and whether or not it would actually work, which will be fun. But then we're also, Aldo and I are going to be doing some tours. We're planning to go to like uh, the company Dynetics um, in, in Huntsville, awesome. where, where we want to get a, a really good look at the alpaca lander, which kind of has some eagle similarities to it. It's like, let's see a real life eagle. Think about it this way. You've got Apollo and you have Artemis. And in the middle, you got Space 1999. That's kind of how I see it. And and the love of the eagle, the love of this, this moon base and that sort of thing, it kind of kept the flame alive for that 50 years. That's That's a big part of what we're talking about here. I think this documentary more, even more than the Eagle is about the fact that the dream of going to the moon, the dream of walking on the moon, the dream of living on the moon, um, you know, space 1999 illustrated that in a way, right? So you had the real Apollo missions and you had the science fiction version of it. And now we're getting ready to go do it for real. So I think there's a very solid through line between Apollo space, 1999, the Eagle and Artemis. And that's what we're, we're going to draw in this documentary. As we as we both know, uh, some of uh, Space 1999's uh, storylines were a little bit fanciful, but that's okay. So, um, but it does have a cult following and, and a fandom. Obviously, I mean there there are there are tons of people out there who you know love the show, who remember the show from when it was you know first coming on and things like that. So, 
What do you think its legacy is in both, you know, real space flight and pop culture? Well, I mean, I know I've met people. I know people who are aerospace engineers and, and scientists who have said, you know, watching Space 1999 inspired me to want to go into a, an aerospace vocation. You know, I think that that's, that that's part of the legacy of this, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, and it is interesting because as you say, the, the story gets a little, a little crazy. I mean, I, you know, I like, like, even as a child, I have to admit, as much as I love that show and I like the characters, I was a big fan of, of the three lead characters, especially, uh, Barry Morse's Victor Bergman, the professor. I thought he was such a great character, you know, this kind of pre-ageism, you know, it's like, it's like we have all this ageism nowadays. It's like, you know, they, like if they recast those characters now, they'd all be in their twenties and thirties. Even though he's like a professor, he'd be like, you know, 22 right, or he'd something. Be 28 and he was a genius. <laughs> he was a genius, you know, a troubled yeah. genius that would be nowadays. But yeah, the fact yeah. That, that these people were, were consummate, intelligent, critical thinkers, professionals, I thought they were tremendous role models. That was the, that was so cool about, about them. So it was like, you had these, 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 scientists and engineers and astronauts and they're on the moon and then this crazy thing happens and then they're suddenly challenged their their skill set is challenged by the circumstances that they were running into i think that's really that's fascinating i struggled with aspects of the show and i don't blame people who see it also that there, there's two sides to it right there are people who are like man the moon could not get blasted out of earth orbit completely agree i it, when i saw that even when i was like i watched that show first saw it seven eight years old i was like um wait a minute <laughs> the moon got blasted out of orbit. Like, like I'm like, you, you know, I think if you had that basic understanding of science, you go to have the moon leave the Earth's gravity well, okay. Then have the moon leave the sun's gravity well, <laughs> okay. Then the moon, the moon travels to other star systems in a matter of days, and then slows down, <laughs> goes into orbit around planets or stop, passes planets long enough for them to go have adventures. They come back to the moon. The moon somehow speeds up again. And go, it's 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 insane. It's insane. I don't know, you know. And I don't mean any offense to anybody. It was who, the seven. Yeah, but it was the seventies. I, I like right? the you show. Know? It was but, the seventies. Yeah, they, yeah. It was but a different it's like, time. Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a heck of a heck of a premise, you know. And and I I don't fault anyone who saw, saw that and said I don't buy this. You know, it's almost like someone saw the the moon base in two thousand and one, and then they saw Star Trek and they said, how can we put these together? <laughs> and then make them into one show, you know. It's that, yeah. You know, so that's my response to that. Here's a confession: I've never watched the show. Okay. Um, but I obviously watched your Kickstarter trailer earlier, and then went and and, and had a little hunt around online and caught a few little bits but i haven't seen it all uh, it's now on my list of things i'd like to do and mm-hmm. one, one of the things that struck me and i know this is is post original star trek yep. so i know there was already a blueprint but again it struck me that it was quite a diverse crew oh yes absolutely no no i yeah. i think it was a lot more diverse than star trek remember the the co-lead of the series was a woman yeah right and it wasn't like it was starring Martin Landau and 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 then she was the co-star. It was like they were the co-leads of the series, right? And you had women um, had lines and dialogue and a part of the action and adventure. They were part of the science. What the, the the female crew members were part of this thing. They weren't just like you know a backdrop to it. And and then also you had you had uh, Kano who was the, the the in charge of the computer on the base who was who was black and. And the and the, the other doctor, he was in, he wasn't a nurse or an assistant. He was a doctor, Doctor Russell's 
co-doctor was black, you know, that was a big deal. And, and you, you had scenes where you had, um, you know, in one scene in, in this um, show that was shot in 1973 and 74, right. Aired in 75, we've got a one frame with multiple black people in it, Asian people in it, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, that was, that was a big deal. And, and it was something that Jerry Anderson and Sylvia, his wife, um, it was important to them that they represent diversity in how they depicted the future. And I think that was tremendous. And it absolutely impacted me as a child. There's no question because, because, you know, that, that idea of being able to see yourself in something, right. And so I, I would watch space 1999 and say, Hey, I'm going to fly the Eagle and it's 25 years from now. And I look at that base and that's got all kinds of diversity. I get to be there. I get to be part of this. That was a big deal. So I think you picked up on something that absolutely was an aspect of the series. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain that helps would have helped it become the, the cultural icon it's become because uh, it, it's in, it included so many people. The people that I know that watch the show, um, it was very diverse. The, 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 you know, as growing up and my friends and family, I mean, like all kinds of different types of people watch that show. And some of whom I know didn't like Star Trek, actually. Okay, when, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the other connection which... I'm fascinated by this is obviously that, as you said, the Anderson connection, because mm-hmm. I did grow up watching Thunderbirds oh, and sure. Captain Scarlet and so on and so forth. Yeah. Obviously uh-huh. completely different kind of show, but the same creator. Mm-hmm. How far does that get explored? The Anderson connection get explored within the documentary? Because over here, Jerry Anderson's got such a huge cult status. Yes. One, well, you know, I'm, planning to, to have at least uh, three shoots in the UK as part of this documentary. So um, it's, we, we can't do it or talk about it without it. It's so, it's so important. Uh, you know, um, Jamie Anderson, uh, uh, Jerry's son is working with us. Nice. And I'm actually an interview with him, um, Jamie in Wales about uh, his father's legacy and what he's doing with Anderson Entertainment. They have ob- obviously created new content and there's all kinds of new merchandise that's been created around uh, the Anderson properties and everything, which is uh, fascinating to me, which is great. Some of the, I mean, the stuff is really, really well done. And they, 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 he's keeping the legacy uh, alive with like real class and dignity and an actual, um, you know, formidable content. I think that's great. It's funny. The first sci-fi show I ever remember seeing was Jerry Anderson's UFO. Okay. Right. Yeah, and UFO is my favorite sci-fi show of all time. I love that show. I think I like it even more than Space 1999, actually, uh, way more. And uh, did you ever see a movie called Doppelganger? That that uh, yes, the, the jury. Yeah, that that was it's a crazy premise, but it, it it's a it's a cool movie. My introduction to Jerry Anderson was really the live action stuff that he was doing. Right, that was that was sort of the beginning of it for me. But I was well aware of the Thunderbirds and all the stuff that you know. And, and there's there's definitely DNA in you know having a cool ship like the Eagle. It feels like it's got similarities to what I think Thunderbird 3 or something like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, it's cool. It's cool for sure. And I, so we absolutely have to address it and talk about it. And it's definitely going to be part of the documentary. And I, I love spending time in England. Funny. I almost feel like I fit in over there better than I do over here. <laughs> I have so many friends from England. And yeah, I, I feel the same way when I'm over in the UK. I'm like, I, I feel like I fit in better over there than I do here, which is very strange. It's very interesting. I feel very comfortable and at home over there, and I feel like I can yep. communicate with people better. I've always liked yep. a lot, a lot of music from there, um, movies from there. You know, it's like I just, I just feel like it resonates. You know, so yeah, that's really interesting because yeah. English people hate Americans. 
Well, <laughs> and that's probably not surprising either. So. I, I just, I just. Hopefully, Emily and I are on the good list. Oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I was joking there. You are most welcome here anytime. Now, I'd like to have a broader chat about sci-fi, if that's okay. I know you have created some of your own worlds and, and stories, so I'm interested to know. Uh, if you think it's perhaps harder now to create something new, I think about when uh, books by Jules Verne or H.G. Wells came out or when the early TV shows and movies started getting released. It must have been quite easy to give the audience something that they never thought about before. But now I've had so many huge and crazy ideas. I mean, Hollywood just goes mental, right? Do, do you think that there is that it's harder now for sci-fi creators. No, I don't I don't think it has to be a problem. I'll tell you why. I've got a project that I want to do. It's called Saturn V and it's about a group of young people in in the future in a much more positive society. Say we we've kind of solved a say we get cold fusion to work or we get um some sort of positive energy source that gets us out of this climate situation, gets gets things going on a positive track, right? And then imagine that we're 50 years on and we've suddenly started, we have a spacefaring civilization and things are really positive, but yet you start to find out that maybe there's some other economic aspects going on, things going on out there. But I want to tell a story about the solar system. And the reason why I'm going to answer your question, but my point is there are so many moons in this solar system that are fascinating. There's so many things in our solar system that people would blow people away based upon real science. Literally, if we did an episode of a show where you land on Titan and you get to see the environment of Titan and just base it on the real data that what we know exists on Titan and use today's visual effects to depict it and have some interesting characters who are on Titan dealing with that, I guarantee you we would blow audiences away. If we went to Enceladus and and we, we discovered that there are actual organisms in the geysers that are being sprayed out into space, right? And we discover there is life under there. There's life on Europa potentially, right? All these moons with subsurface oceans, right? Pluto has um, a subsurface ocean and, and it's, it's, it's warm and it's like, this is crazy. I was talking with Alan Stern about this and we were, we were discussing that there's a good possibility there could be organisms on Pluto. I mean, the point is right in our own solar system, there are I mean, amazing worlds, amazing things. And we have the data. The data yeah. exists to actually inform the, the visuals and the story. And then, we, so if you build a story, it's all got to be about the characters. You got to love the characters and you got to believe in them. You got to pull, pull for them. But I, I believe you don't have to have horror. You don't have to have violence and, and good versus evil. It's literally just exploration and survival and the challenge of ex- exploration. I think you could build amazing stories around that. And I just think no one's doing it. No one knows how to take the risk to do it. And I've been out here trying to pitch this stuff for years. And, and it's a struggle because what happens is when I, when I go pitch it up to something like this in Hollywood, they don't have the, enough of a science background that they understand the magic of the reality of what's out there. So to them, science and science fiction, it's like a, a game of telephone. Everything is based upon a movie, based upon a movie, based upon a movie, based upon a movie, right? It, you know? And, and you only have like three or four lanes of original creativity that people follow. There's the Star Wars lane. There's the alien lane. 
there's yeah. the, there's kind of a Tron lane. You know what I mean? It's like, right? There's Blade Runner. There's a Blade Runner lane. And everything's kind of a remix of those things, right? It, right? And, and so I'm talking about something that's completely different. It's like bringing in real advisors from the aerospace industry, you know, um, real scientists and really building a drama and a character-driven drama that uses the realities of science. And JPL is right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we right. Yeah, JPL is literally right there. You know, yeah, exactly. And by the way, I hear stories about them hiring uh, the science and technical advisors from NASA, and then they don't listen to them. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. The advisor goes, "Well, you guys really couldn't do that," and they go, "Yeah, yeah, thanks." <laughs> you know, and then they, yeah, they do this ridiculous stuff. Look, if if I had a billion dollars. You guys blow your way. I blow you away. If 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 I had a billion dollars, you know what I'm saying? It's just oh, yeah. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. Talking of we'll talking work, of we're we'll work on it. Talking of yeah. working on it. Uh, let's just let's get back to to space 1999 a moment and your sure. new documentary Eagle has landed because there yeah. is a Kickstarter and it, time is running out and yep. it's an ambitious Kickstarter. So tell us what you're trying to do and why it's important. Okay, so um, the Eagles landed. We talked a little bit earlier about the documentary. So it's it's. It's really using the Eagle spacecraft and a little bit of Space 1999 to talk about what I consider to be a very unique era in human history, which is when we were traveling to the moon and the aftermath of that and the impact of that on a whole generation of young people, myself being one of them, and the idea that this iconic spacecraft has kind of kept the dream alive for five decades while society regrouped and now we're heading back. You know, so it's going to talk in the beginning about Apollo it's going to talk in the end about Artemis and some of the moon initiatives. But in the middle, there's a human journey where I'm going to talk with people who are, um, who are part of all this, who are you know fans of it, people who were part of the project when it was originally made, all of that. And I'm going to tell that story. Um, and I think it's going to be very surprising for people to see the actual impact that this spacecraft and this time had on our civilization. And that's what the documentary is ultimately about. It does have a, the, the Kickstarter is, a, is at a half million dollars, which is high for a typical Kickstarter. We've, uh, we've already funded almost 25% of that. We still have another week, over a week left. It closes next Thursday. So there's, there's actually, and they're Kickstarters that fund within minutes, right? It's just a question of awareness and interest. So this has gotten international attention. People are very into it. Um, we have already raised more money than most Kickstarters do by far, which is great. We still have quite a ways to go. And I'd love to see if people could support us because at the end of the day, this isn't just about Space 1999, especially with the space community. I think everyone, anyone watching this interview right now, you can tell that I care about this stuff. It, it really matters to me. I grew up with this and it epitomized the future for me. And I, I really want to tell you those stories. And I'm one of you, you know, and, I, and I'm hoping to, uh, to not only create this documentary, but I see it as a jumping off point to do a lot of other really, really cool things. Absolutely. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. This has been such a cool conversation. This has been awesome. This has been well, such a guys. great conversation. So thank yeah. you so much. And we wish you all the best with the Kickstarter. And uh, and hopefully uh, a few people will come and sign up after listening to this. More than a few people. I hope everyone yeah, well, will come. Oh, by the it. way, you can go to eagledocumentary.com and you can learn all about the project. So that's eagledocumentary.com. And it also has a link to the Kickstarter right there. Uh, videos, uh, a big discussion about what it is and how it all works. So you can you can check it all out there. Yeah, it all looks great as well. I was on there before we we spoke today. It's a wonderful site. So uh, go and check that out. Find out more. Awesome. Our sincerest thanks to our many supporting members across the solar system. To join us, go to patreon.com forward slash space and things. 
Okay, so obviously, as I said, I never watched Space 1999. But when I saw that you were involved in this, Emily, I was like, well, what's this all about? <laughs> of course, the Eagles landed. My first thought was, oh, you're doing an Apollo documentary. So that made me want to go and have a look. But obviously, it's yeah. nothing to do with that. But I am very much drawn into this. I think this is a fascinating story, and I'm annoyed that I've not seen it because of and now everything I'm seeing. I'm like, I, sh- I should know this inside out. This this is something I should be aware of. When did you first watch it? I'll admit I haven't watched the whole the entire series, but um, I I remember seeing Space 1999 as a kid, sort of in like reruns and stuff like that. I didn't really have any knowledge about the scientific basis of the show, because if you watch the show just based on, you know, uh, the storylines, you're going to be like, man, that's that's unrealistic. That could never happen. But I love the spacecraft. I like the Eagle when I was a kid. I thought that was really cool. I love the aesthetic of the show when I was young, because it was still it was like kind of that mid 70s, but retro futuristic sort of look to it. You know, I love stuff like that. Uh, I still love stuff like that. It has that sort of, you know, it's in the 70s, but it has that stylized look to it. It's really cool. So I remember seeing it when I was a kid. So this probably would have been like early 80s or show or, or so probably about I'm guessing eight, seven, eight years after the show probably first ran. I, I like Star Trek too, and I don't want to compare the two shows because they're not the same. They don't they're not the same thing. Cause Space 1999 focuses on the moon and things like that. Whereas yeah. Star Trek, they go on all sorts of different adventures throughout the universe. And um I just thought it was a really, you know, a cool show. I thought it was cool that somebody did a show about the moon so close to like the real Apollo missions because Apollo ended in 1972 yeah. and this show came out first in 1975 so i thought it was cool they that they did something you know so close to apollo you know sort of talking about the future of the moon and having people actually live on the moon unfortunately it's taken over god 50 years for us to actually start to think about this again but that's when i first remember space 1999 though was in the early 80s but it was well after the show was canceled i just remember seeing it in syndication i thought and i thought the the effects were cool and i thought the aesthetic of the show was pretty cool as well i really loved it absolutely and so how did you end up becoming an associate producer for the for the documentary that's a great question well i know jeffrey uh i've known jeffrey for a few years we've met a few times at like space fest and things like that jeffrey is really cool we we kind of um uh, are from sort of the same era in a way we're both sort of gen x I think our generation, because he said at the beginning of this uh, interview, he was born in 67. I was born in 78. So he's kind of at the beginning of Gen X. and I'm sort of at near the end of Generation X. And um, I think our generation overall has sort of a different view because I think people, I don't want to say, you know, boomers, because now I don't want to cause a generational war on our podcast. I think they have a different view of that era, the 1970s, that than versus what we have. I wasn't alive during much of the 1970s, but having imbibed some of the content from that time, I think it was still a very hopeful, there were a lot of hopeful visions of the future at the time. You know, you had stuff like Space 1999, which showed us living on the moon in the future, which is which is something that I think back at that time we were thinking, yeah, we'll live on the moon. That seems plausible. I mean, why not? Yeah. We've been there. 
you did yeah. have stuff like Star Trek. You know, you had stuff like that as well, which showed crews going to deep space and things like that. And at the time, that seemed, you know, oh, yeah, we'll probably do that by, you know, the, the 2020s. That seems doable. It was sort of a optimistic time in a lot of ways. You know, I, I hate God, I hate dropping this again, but you had people like Gerard K. O'Neill who are basically saying, you know, hey, you know, it's possible that we could be living in space in the future and here's ways to do it. I, I like to view that decade through sort of an optimistic lens and, you know, and you had things like Space 1999 that were exciting. Also, Jeffrey and I have bonded over, a, we both love a certain space station from that time as well. We both love uh, a certain space station. So I, I think that's kind of what uh, what caused us to vibe together is that we both sort of like a lot of the same stuff. And I think we both have a similar view of that that decade, you know, the 1970s as sort of a hopeful decade. It's funny because a lot of people from the generation before, a lot of people from the, you know, the baby boomers would probably say the opposite. You know, they would say, oh, we stopped going to the moon and it was horrible and that decade sucked and stuff like that. But I I don't know. I tend to view that decade through a different lens. I mean, it like I said, it wasn't perfect. I, I think no time, if you look at any period of time, there's a lot of criticisms you could have about the leadership of that time or whatever about that era. But I think the 70s, you know, people were looking at space exploration like, oh, this is something we could really do in the future. You know, this is something that really has a lot of potential to help humankind. And I think that's how we see spaceflight. I'd love to see people try to live in space, you know, and and like Jeffrey said in the interview, you know, that the the drama is going to be just from trying to live in that environment by itself. You don't need aliens. You don't need explosions or you don't need anything. I mean, the drama is, oh, God, how am I going to fix my spacesuit? I got to go outside and yeah. do something. You know, I got to fix this component, but my spacesuit is having issues. How do I fix that? You can't just exactly go to Amazon on the moon can't just be like oh order a new spacesuit absolutely yeah you can't do that on yeah. the moon you can't do that in deep space you know you gotta yet yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'm yet. sure jeff will find a way yeah exactly <laughs> you know i'm sure one of the space billionaires are gonna find a way to do that it would be nice if that were the possible and i think nasa and other contractors are trying to make that a reality because i know they have 3d printers in space now mm-hmm. still I, I think the drama that comes from space like jeffrey said is not from you know aliens or something like that because i feel like a lot of sci-fi tries to be like oh and there's an alien like you don't really need that a part of the drama is just learning how to live in a place and learning how to take care of yourself in a place that you don't really have a lot of resources i hope that answered the question that was kind of a very roundabout way to answer the question but i think me and jeffrey see i think jeffrey and i see things kind of the in a similar vein, if that makes sense. I think that's why he asked me to work on the project. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm fascinated by this project. I really hope it succeeds. So of course, as always, there will be links in the show notes. And Jeffrey said some of the links as well at the end of the interview there. So please do go and check this out. Also, I really enjoyed our conversation there about sci-fi. And I'd be really interested to hear more from, from our listeners about their experiences of sci-fi what they've liked about sci-fi what they liked about it in the past where it is now what they'd like to see in the future because i think it's certainly a huge part of being a spaceflight nerd is that you are also interested in the extreme 
ideas of what could happen, which ultimately gets played out within sci-fi. I think there's a lot of cool conversations to be had here, and I'd like to have them. So please do let us know your thoughts as well. Get in touch via social media or the contact form on our website, and let us know what you think. Now, if you're a patron subscriber or you become one, we have a really good bonus question this week with Jeffrey. A whole part of the conversation I had to cut out for time reasons, but it's a good old 14-minute chat about Star Wars and potentially the subject we talked about could be an episode in itself. So if you want to hear more from Jeffrey and want to hear some controversial opinions about Star Wars, then head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things and sign up or log in. Are you over the moon about this podcast? It's not just a phase. You're listening to Space and Things. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight this week? So, there's two stories that kind of directly contradict one another this week, which I think is kind of hysterical. But there's an article that came out a few days ago in Scientific American called Why We'll Never Live in Space. Uh, I'm not going to slam the uh, writer. I think I know the writer through uh, Twitter and stuff like that. And uh, she's pretty cool. Basically, the article, you know, discusses the medical, financial and ethical hurdles that come with living in space. And, it, and I have to admit, as much as I am a O'Neill, Gerard O'Neill acolyte, and I'm like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll be living in space. And uh, the writer makes a pretty good case because living in space sounds awesome, right? Yeah. It sounds pretty cool. Just a little bit. It's not going to be easy. <laughs> I mean, there's this thing called radiation up there. There are things that need to be kind of looked at further before we think about living in space for really long periods of time. And I think uh, Frank Rubio, who just came back from a year in space, can probably attest to this. Yeah. It's a good article, and I'm sure a lot of space people will probably want to slam it, but it's a very good thought-out article, and it does set out a pretty good case for, okay, why is it going to be difficult to live in space, which I understand completely. I'm a very optimistic person, and even I think it's not going to be easy to, you know, just live up there year after year, especially when we're not made for that environment. We just aren't. And I think just a day ago, another article dropped on the New York Times, and it's called, Maybe in Your Lifetime, People Will Live on the Moon and Then Mars. So so that kind of goes directly against the article from Scientific American. And this article basically sets out, and again, it has some good points in it, and it has some uh, good perspectives in it. I'm not attacking the writer. This is just a summary of the article. It's from the New York Times, and it says, through partnerships and 3D printing, NASA is plotting on how to build houses on the moon by 2040. So yeah, it sort of goes in direct competition with this article by Scientific America that's basically saying, yeah, living in space might be cool, but there's a lot of problems that are going to pose itself in this other article is like nah we're gonna be in on the moon by 2040 you know we're gonna be living (laughs) in houses there so i just think it's interesting how these came out within a few days of each other and i feel like the 1970s are back i've studied that decade and there was a lot of similar articles around this time you know you had articles that were like man the world is a piece of garbage we're all gonna be dead in a few years We're running out of resources. Everything's horrible at the end. And then you had another article a day later by Gerard K. O'Neill. Let's go to space. There's unlimited resources there. Everything's awesome. So I just thought that was interesting. I don't know. I feel like the 70s are back. And they're both good articles. And they both have great points. So I'm not attacking either one of them. I think they're both an interesting read. So anyway, what about you, Dave? What have you been looking at? So I'm getting excited about the psych mission, which is coming up. 
I think it's uh, it's a nice thing to be happening hot off the heels of the Cyrus Rex sample return. So uh, NASA are uh, launching the mission. It's going to be on a Falcon Heavy, which is always fun. So this is, this should be in the next couple of weeks. It's already been delayed a week, but hopefully hopefully soon it will launch. And it's a journey to a unique metal-rich asteroid orbiting the sun between Mars and Jupiter. This is straight from the JPL website. So what makes the asteroid Psyche unique, I love the fact that the asteroid is called Psyche. Anyway, what makes the asteroid Psyche unique is that it appears to be the exposed nickel-iron core of an early planet, one of the building blocks of our solar system. So this is pretty cool. It's not a sample return. Uh, mission, but it's a uh, it's it's going to have a look at a very early asteroid. We're we're learning a hell of a lot about our origins from these asteroids, and so I'm I'm glad we're doing more of it. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, the FAA, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, has closed its investigation of the failure suffered by Blue Origin's new Shepard suborbital vehicle last September. Um, which is good, which means hopefully we'll start seeing the new Shepard uh, flying again because that was going fairly regularly up until <laughs> that point. Fortunately, that one was was not crewed, but the crew compartment would have actually got away uh, yeah. from that launch failure. So um, hopefully the Blue Origin have learned a load from that. Hopefully we've got good steps going forward. That's a good news story. Not trying to be butt-kissy to Blue Origin, but I would go on that spacecraft 100%, man, because the orbit, the, the board system worked. You know, and when I saw yeah, that, it, I was like, okay, that that's all I need to know is that I'm coming. If I was on that, I'd be coming back home alive. So I'm like, yeah, that, that to I me, doubt it, I doubt it would be much fun, but yeah, but yeah, you'd <laughs> but, probably, but have you're going to come home. You'd probably have a little body stiffness afterwards. You'd be, I'd be on the couch yeah, for a, a few headache. days. <laughs> I might yeah. be on the couch. I might be on the couch for a couple of days reclined, you know, in agony on a few Tylenol, but still you'd be alive. You'd be alive to talk about it, you know, and. To, to do it again you know see i'm nuts i would go on it again so it's good that they got to the bottom of what happened you know with the with the launch vehicle as well so the, the, the other the other story which i think is interesting although there's no conclusion here but nasa has said that they're going to address concerns about the mars sample return missions unrealistic budget we've spoken about this a few times yes obviously there's been uh been a lot of people saying it's getting too expensive and the, the things going on so nasa have said they're forming a response team which is good, right? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're planning to respond, which is nice. Nice to know that we're going to get a response yeah. uh, and, and hopefully figure out what's going to go on there. I'm sure they'll provide, you know, cogent, well thought out things for both sides, both sides oh, of the issue. Because, I mean, it'd be awesome to see this kind of thing happen. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to hear from NASA about this and, and yeah. hopefully we'll find out uh, a little bit more about what happened and what might happen because I still want to see this happen. Anyway, yeah. there's one final thing I do I do want to talk about because I, I think it's amazing. Reed Wiseman, who is the commander of Artemis II, which will fly next year, I saw a quote from him, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> and he was talking about his spacewalk that he, he did. And he said, uh, I used to think I was scared of heights, but now I know I was just scared of gravity. And I really wow. like that. <laughs> I really like that. That's so uh yeah. That's an incredible I never I haven't seen that quote, but that I love it already because that's an incredible way to look at that. That's not a perspective a lot of people It's a great quote, isn't it? It's a great quote. So uh Yeah, that's an I, awesome I, I, way it, to look at it. It gets to the what we were talking about when we got that crew announcement of for the for Artemis two, it was very exciting because we said 
hopefully we're going to get to know these people. And it's things like now these quotes from these people are coming out, right? So now we're hearing something from Reed, which gives you an insight to him and also then an insight into spaceflight. And I think that's just one of those great things. You know, you've got the Commander Artemis too, used to be scared of heights. And I think that really humanizes him and astronauts. I know we've, uh, we spoke to Mike Massimino before, who was also scared of heights and became an yeah. astronaut. But I just, I just love it. I just thought it was a great quote and I wanted to share it. I thought it was something worth sharing today. It is something worth sharing. Now he's going to the moon, which to me is awesome. I mean, you have somebody who was afraid of heights and now they're headed to the moon. It does humanize him because it, it makes, I'm scared of a lot of things. So now I know that, you know, <laughs> makes me a little hopeful that, oh, maybe I could overcome that, you know, but hopefully they don't have like spiders on, <laughs> in space. <laughs> yeah. I think they got burnt up when Skylab came home. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Streaming from Earth's northern hemisphere to the solar system and beyond, you are listening to the Space and Things podcast. So, thanks for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. This may have been an episode about a TV show that you've never seen, but if you fit into that bracket, and I fell into that bracket, hopefully it will make you want to seek, seek it out, or at least you got something out of our interview today. I know I did. So, we quite like the idea of doing more uh, sci-fi based episodes over the next year so we've obviously talked about Star Trek before and of course for all mankind so let us know if you're interested in this kind of thing and what shows or movies you think you might want us to talk about yes thank you all for your support we really do appreciate that you listen and all those who continue to support us financially uh, as well by signing up to Patreon donating or buying some merchandise from our website it really is very humbling and we thank you sincerely. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Childs. <laughs>